0: Good morning, open your Bibles up to the 5th chapter of Matthew. And we're ministering on the subject of the Sermon on the Mount. And I'd like to kind of finish what we started a few weeks ago in regard to the Christian influence. And then there's kind of a little bit of a pause in the sermon where Jesus talks about how that he did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And so I'm going to take a little break after today and share with you another message next week, then take a little vacation, and, and uh, when we get back, we'll pick up in Matthew 5 where he speaks about how that uh, he came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. But a few weeks ago, I started sharing with you about how that our influence as Christians is that he says that we're salt and light. In Matthew five thirteen. he says, you are the salt of the earth. And if the salt has lost his Savior, then wherewithal shall it be salted? It's thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. And then he goes on and he says, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle or a lamp, but put it under a bushel. They don't light a lampstand and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick or something high. And it gives light unto all that are in the house. So he says, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify God. So let's talk about this for a minute because so many times we are around other people that are not Christians or maybe they're friends and they're professing Christians. But so often we need to remind ourselves, hey, I'm salt and I'm light and my testimony and how I live in front of others and of course in front of God is very, very important. I mean, when I became a Christian, I was asked this one time by an individual, why doesn't God just take us home after we become Christian? Why do we have to stay down here so long? (laughs) Well, of course, there's different reasons for that. But one of them is the fact that he wants us to be salt and light. So let's run through these real quick, and I want you to apply them to yourself, not somebody else. But to yourself, what does it mean to be salt? Well, first of all, salt makes things better. I did touch on a little bit of this a couple weeks ago. And we talked about how that it makes improvements in things like foods, for example. Some people like it more than others, but it kind of enhances the flavors and brings out a different taste. Job talks about it. And Job 6, 6, where he says, how can you eat an egg without salt? I laugh every time I think about that verse. Because the book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. So he said that several thousand years ago. And if you can picture him, I just can't picture him sitting out there scraping pottery with one hand eating a a hard-boiled egg with another. But, (laughs) But he was making a point. Because some things just really need to be enhanced. So it speaks about an improvement. Well then, he's saying we are salt. So we should be, as Pam was bringing out when she was standing up here sharing. We're blessed. We have, even she said, like even on a bad day, they would take our bad days compared to uh, what they have. And we really are. And that's because of the promises that Jesus gives unto us that he promises us to give us a good life. I mean, in John 10, without turning it, John 10, 10, he says, the thief who Satan comes for one purpose, to kill and to steal and to destroy. He wants to destroy families. He wants to destroy careers. He wants to rob you of the talents and the abilities that God's blessed you with. He's come to kill, to steal, and destroy. But the rest of that verse goes on to say, But I have come to give life, and life abundantly. Not just life, you know, like you'll hear the phrase, get a life, you know. Well, what people are saying is, why don't you focus on your life instead of mine? But when he says that he wants to give us an abundant life, our life is from the time that we're born to the time that we go home where we work, where we marry, where we live, what we do with our time. He just wants to be there to bless and bless abundantly. It's not something that's trial free. We'll have our trials. Let me read to you real quick about Mark chapter 10. This is where the rich young ruler came to Jesus, of course. And he stressed how that he wanted to know if there was anything else he needed to do to obtain unto eternal life. And he went through the commandments and he said I've I've obeyed them all I'm sure he was probably kind of looking for a, a pat on the back but instead Jesus knew either by word and knowledge or in some way that he was far too attached to his money and so he told him in the 21st verse he said beholding him Jesus loved him and said you're only lacking one thing Go thy way and sell whatsoever thou hast and give it to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven and then come and take up the cross and follow me. So he laid it out. People ought to listen to that. Like I said last week when Bill and Melinda Gates made comment, you know, announced to the world, the richest man in the world, I believe he is, announced to the world they were getting a divorce. They obviously, well, we know that's not something that God is a blessing of the Lord. But I still think about that one media newspaper that made the comment, well, if they can't make it, who can? And I thought the reason they said that is because they think that happiness comes from having money. You know what I mean? But that's not where it's at. And it just shows you the attitude of people in the world. Well, that attitude is kind of like what the rich young ruler had. Because when Jesus said, give your wealth away, give it to the poor, and then I want you to pick up your cross and follow me, his attitude was kind of like, well, how can I do that without my wealth? I don't want to give up my wealth. I don't want to give up my home. I don't want to give up my possessions. And then he was sad, he walked away, grieved, he had a lot of money. And Jesus looked round about and said to his disciples, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? The disciples then were astonished at his word and Jesus said, children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of god of course i've heard a lot of stories about what was meant there but he's just saying it's impossible it's an impossible situation you can't serve two masters that will come out in the sermon on the mount he says to seek first the kingdom of god and they were astonished out of measure saying amongst themselves well who who then can be saved and he said with men it's impossible but not with god for with god All things are possible. In other words, God can remove the affection for material things from our heart whereby we're willing to serve him even when it costs us everything. And, of course, the ones that were listening to him at that point, they got tested on that within a few years. I mean, you study in the book of Acts. The early Christian would have houses and possessions taken away from them. Paul exhorted in the book of Hebrews to entertain strangers unaware because there were a lot of christians that were fleeing the heavy persecution that was there and they had nothing some had more than others and so for a while they had all things in common to try to help those people out that had nothing but some lost it all and then peter makes the statement he says lord we've left all and we followed thee and jesus said to them there's no man that has left his house Brethren, sisters, or father or mother, wife or children. In other words, family. Or lands for my sake and the gospels. But he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time. That's the abundant life. He promises that he will bless our family. He promises that he'll bless our employment. He promises that he'll bless the works of our hand. He will bless us abundantly if we... Just simply start seeking first the kingdom of God. I mean, in in a lot of ways, look over to Colossians 3, for example. A lot of ways this applies to us, like, well, when we bear the name of Christ, when we tell people that we're a Christian, people are going to hold us to a higher standard. They're going to expect more out of us than a person that is not a Christian. They're going to hold us to a higher standard. Let's say, for example, that you... Get a job, and they find out. You let them know in the interview process, and whatever happens, you know something comes up, and you let them know that you're a Christian. That employer is going to hold you to a higher standard. He's going to see whether or not you wear your Christianity around your neck on a chain like a cross, or if you genuinely are, as you say, you are a Christian. Colossians three twenty-three. He says. Whatever we do, and he's talking about the family a little bit, and then he says, servants obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Not with eye service as a men pleaser, but in singleness of heart fearing God. In other words, you don't work when the boss is around, but then when the boss is not around, then you stand around, you talk, you loaf, or you don't do your job as you should. And he goes on, he says, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord. That name Christian on there should be significant in regard to our talents and abilities. I mean, businessmen, for example, should be totally upright, totally ethical, totally honest. And as a Christian worker, you shouldn't have to have a manager that watches over you and microscopes everything that you do to make sure that you're doing it right you should be in whatever job you're doing, you're doing it, doing it unto the Lord I mean if you're working on a home it's God's house I want to do this right I don't want to do shoddy workmanship attitudes that's very important I mean one place I worked for example they knew I was going to school at that point I was working and I get off on Wednesdays the company let me get off about two o'clock in the afternoon normally I had worked about four they let me get off about two and I would drive to Indiana every Wednesday for I think I did that for like three years and they asked me they you know they wanted me to be a supervisor in the shop and do different things I said no my goal my heart is set on the ministry I've got a calling in that area and so I'm only here temporary and I don't know, they I think they treated me really nice, hoping they'd get me changed my mind. But they watched my attitude. And I can remember where you'd apply biblical principles. I remember one time the uh, production, I was a skilled tradesman, and in the production realm, they had broken something. And so they came out and they had a whole bunch of parts that were missing some holes in it. So they basically were scrap and junk. So they took over a portion of the shop that I was working in, and they set up the drill press, this great big drill press to put the holes in this part to whereby it wouldn't be scrapped. We made we made radiators for um, caterpillars and semis, big equipment. Well, they did that for like four days. And when they got done, this drill press, which is about, about the size of this whole row of chairs here, was just absolutely awful. Awesome. Filthy mess. Now, now, when the skilled tradesmen, we cleaned everything up when we got done with it. I mean, you could have dropped a sandwich on a machine, picked it up, and eaten it, and it wouldn't have bothered you. It was just everything was extremely super meticulous and clean. We took pride in all that. And so there were like five or six of us, I think, at that point, that were working in the shop. And when the production people walked away from it, it was the filthiest, oiliest, dirtiest mess you could imagine. And the boss came over and says, started going down the line saying, okay guys, clean it up. And they all, with one, all my other coworkers, they all folded their arms, said, no, we'll walk out. We'll just go on straight. They refused it because they didn't make the mess. You know, you make the mess, you clean it up. And they were, you know, it was a union fight type thing. And I thought to myself, as I was standing there and the boss going down the line and I was the last one of the highest seniority and he said to me, clean it up. I said, no problem. And I started cleaning up. Of course, that didn't make any friends with my, my coworkers. But my attitude toward them was, look, I'm a Christian. And Jesus told me there are going to be some times when I got to go the second mile. This is the second mile. You know what I'm saying? As you grow and you mature as a Christian and you learn what Jesus says in his word, he wants you to make improvements in people's lives, your witness and testimony, based upon a lot of things that he says, circumstance in your word. You could be at work and you'll hear people grumble and complain about their boss and grumble and complain about the pay and grumble and complain about different conditions. I mean, negativeness seems to spread like a cancer and what god wants you to do is he wants you to be soul he wants you to enhance something positive that bring something positive into it we talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago to a certain degree your soul he wants you to take that which is uh or how I, i don't know how to say it but he wants you to enhance it he wants you to improve it And so you do that by not following others and following what they do, but being something different. I mean, calling yourself Christian, I mean, that's the whole point of of things like Christian schools. Why do people put their kids in a Christian school versus a public school? Why? Because they want something better. Why do people maybe buy something from a Christian company rather than a non-Christian company? Because they're expecting something better, better quality, honesty, prices, things of that sort. I mean, people will buy furniture, and you'll see, for example, where if they buy something from made by the Amish, they'll make comments, and they'll say, this is Amish made. Why throw that on there? Because they're saying, because a Christian made this, or a professing Christian made this. You know, they're, they're kind of assuming that God's blessing the works of their hands, And what they're doing. In that regard, it's making an improvement. And so we're to say to ourselves in every situation we come into, if it's a deteriorating situation, we should say, hi, I'm the soul. I'm the one that's supposed to make some improvements in this situation. Now, we're not to lose our saber. We're not to lose our effect. We're not to be a compromiser. But at the same time, we should be the peacemakers. We should be the positive attitude people. We should be the ones that glorify God for our talents and abilities. We should be the ones that set the direction that it should go and not blend in with all the negatives, all negativeness of the world. Is it going to always work? No, not really. Because this comes right after what he said about persecution. There are going to be times where you are persecution. He says, like in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, this chapter's um, talking about, in 2 Corinthians 2, let me turn there, it's talking about, uh, I think this is the one where he's talking about, a little bit about church discipline. But he makes a statement in the 14th verse. He says, now, thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ and makes manifested, the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. In other words, he wants us to bring forth the knowledge of him in every situation that we're into. And this can be done by what we say or can be done by what we live. He says, we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved, in them that are perished. To the one we're a savor of death unto death, to the other a savor of life unto life, And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but a sincerity as of God in his sight. We speak Christ. We speak the truth. We're not to to corrupt the word of God, but at the same time, the word of God is pure. And when we seek to live it as an example for people to see, a living epistle... It's putting some salt into that situation. He wants us to be the initiative. He wants us to love people, not just expect love. He wants us to be the peacemaker, not just expect people to give us peace. He wants us to bear forth the fruit of the Spirit in our lives to whereby he, uh, salt can come forth and enhance that situation. Turn over to the book of Colossians chapter 4 and verse 6. Salt has a healing effect, a cleansing effect. Every time I think of this, I think of my my poor dad. He was one that worked in a factory all the time and was on concrete floors all the time. And I can remember him buying shoes all the time. I don't know that he could ever find the pair of shoes that he could really work a lot in, but he was always on his feet on the concrete. He'd come home from work after working you know, eight, ten hours a day, seven days a week. And he had this machine that was a blue in fact I don't we may still have it. I know we got it at one point and I don't know if we still do or passed it on. It was a little blue blue bucket thing that you'd plug in and you turn it on and it would be like a whirlpool for your feet. And he would come home and he'd sit down, my mom would take the tea kettle and pour some hot water in it and then she'd get out this box called Epsom salt. You ever heard of Epsom salt? <laughs> and she'd go dumping that in there, and he'd sit there and watch television with his feet in that bucket that was massaging, and I'd look down there, and his feet were blistered and corned and looked so sore and red. But he had to do that so that he could continue working. He just had really uh, poor feet situations. So it was epsom salt that had a positive effect upon the the, hearing, the curing or the healing or whatever it was doing. If you look up what epsom salt does, I think I did, and it said something like 10 different reasons to use epsom salt. And I thought, really? I didn't know it did some of the things that it did. But I wrote some of them down. They said you use it for detoxing, like feet and so forth. It'll reduce swelling. It'll help on sunburns. I didn't know that, but that's what they talk about. They said it'll, it will relieve stress. Do you ever think? About, I never heard that either. Help relieve stress? How does it do that? Well, I guess you know our body requires certain chemicals to operate and function properly. Vitamins sometimes are a means of supplementing a, a chemical that got has in our body where maybe it's going down by some of the garbage and stuff that we've eaten. So according to this, it said that our bodies need magnesium and magnesium comes from salt. And when one takes a bath in salt or um, not just the feet but the whole body, that it increases the magnesium level in the skin and it helps reduce stress. I thought that was kind of interesting. It goes on to other things. It talked about wounds, cleaning, and on and on. But the idea behind it is that God wants us to live a high moral standard. And he wants us to be careful with our speech and what we say. Colossians 4, for example, I told you to turn there in verse 6. He says in Colossians 4 and verse 6, Let your speech be always with grace seasoned with salt that you may know how to answer every man. So he's saying we need to be really careful with our words and ask the question, am I healing this situation? You get into a conflict with someone over something. Maybe someone has said something or they've offended you or you've been offended by something that's coming across. And the tendency is, To get into an argument, to get angry, to get upset. Again, Jesus deals with that very clearly in the next verses coming up in the Sermon on the Mount. And he tells us to lay it aside. So he says it ought to be seasoned. It ought to be healing. It ought to be curing. It ought to be glorifying God. It ought to be honoring him. I mean, many, many places in the Bible tell us that our speech is to be like in Titus 1.15 He speaks about the elders, and he says that they should have speech that is uh, uncondemned and speech that should be sound. In other words, it's healthy, it's right. We ought not to have things like profanity or slang or just unclean words in various ways, or if it isn't directly unclean but it implies an unclean thing. God wants us to clean it up. He wants us to be an example that we're not creating stress, but we're bringing forth something that is edifying, something that is building, something that is helpful. We're told over in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, if you turn over there real quick or listen to this, he talks about how that we should be speaking in a way that edifies. Now, this isn't talking about salt, and it isn't talking about, words in the way that i have been using it but the principle is still the same he's talking about the gifts of the spirit and he's talking about speaking in tongues versus not speaking in tongues and he's talking about prophecy versus the gift of tongues there is a gift in the body where a person may be anointed with a with a language other than their own language and they bring that forth it's something where god is giving them uh it's the equivalent of a of a prophetic encouraging word, but he brings it forth in a language that we don't know. So he says with it then you should pray for the interpretation so that we get edified. It wouldn't do any good if we had somebody that came in here and spoke Russian and they stood at the door and they gave us a two minute exhortation in Russia, in Russian. If nobody in this room understood Russian, We'd all kind of look at him or her and think, well, that's cool, but what did you just say? We'd get absolutely nothing out of it. Well, that's the way it is with a, a supernatural language that God would give, that he's speaking to the church to build up the church, admonish the church in some way. Sometimes he uses a language we don't know. But he says, if that happens, then what I want you to do is pray for the interpretation so that we get edified. So in that context, at 1 Corinthians 14, he makes this statement, verse 3, I'll back up. He says, He that prophesies speaks unto men to edification, exhortation, and comfort. In other words, that's what that word of the Lord is for. But he that speaks in a, and unknown's not in the Greek. It's, it's in a language not known to the person speaking it. He that speaks in a, in a language or tongue He edifies himself, but he that prophesies or gives the interpretation with it, whereby we understand it, it says he edifies the church. Well, when Paul's talking about there in Colossians 4, 6 about our speech should be seasoned, he's saying our speech should be encouraging and building. The word edification, if you look it up, it just means a building. It speaks about a home. Sometimes in the Greek word, same thing that is used in a house. So we're supposed to be building in a situation, not tearing down. So if you enter into the gossip, you enter into the negativeness, you enter into the sarcasm, you enter in by adding more and more garbage to an already garbage pile that's coming out of a person's mouth, you're not building, you're destroying. You're not building, you're bringing decay. You're not encouraging that situation to get cured, you're bringing more stress into it. Just like if if you picture my father sitting there with his feet in that bucket, he was trying to get the swelling down. He's trying to get the inflammation and the uh, infection down. Well, somehow what we need to do is learn to control our tongue to whereby we're removing the infection, not adding to it. We're helping to heal the problem, not add to it. We need to learn to control our tongue. So Paul speaks there about how the salt is used in regard to the idea of being an an improver, a healer, a cleanser, and so forth, but he puts it in the realm of speech. Salt's a preserver. It's something that before refrigeration meats, for example, were salted. Back years ago, I remember, Bev and I took a vacation, and we went to Virginia, we went to Williamsburg. Anybody ever been to Williamsburg besides us? We happened to go there, and it was I think it was like November. Um, it was in the fall of the year at least. But when we went, we they were at that point where they were butchering animals. They were butchering pigs. They were butchering, uh, I forget what all. Now it's been a while. But they were butchering animal. And what they would do is they would salt down the meats that were there. Uh, I happen to go out online and see if I can find it there were like 10 recipes for salting meat on their website, which I thought was kind of interesting, because they would salt with a dry salt, and then they would also use a brine. And I just copied one or two of the quick recipes down to put it up here. There are like 10 of them out there on how to salt meat, because that's what they did. They didn't have refrigeration back in the 1600s, 1700s. So if you look at it, it says this is for the dry cure, for dry salting meat, several examples included salting beef. You would sprinkle it well with salt, six hours later hang it up to the drain, then rub it well with salt, lay it in a salting tub, closely covered, turn dately, salvage the brine by boiling and scumming. I imagine that was maybe skimming, I don't know. And salt pork. To do pork you'd cut it into pieces, fit it in a pan rub it well with saltpeter. Then take two pints of common salt, rub it well, put a layer of common salt on the bottom of the vessel, cover and pack it with salt, add salt as it melts, lay coarse salt over the vessel, place a board over that, and a weight on top of the board. All these instructions are out there on how to salt meat because that's what they did. It was a preserver. The last thing down there, it said, if you do it right, it'll keep for a whole year. So. All these recipes are out there on how to salt your meat. I see Melissa smiling, and John's getting his eyes out there like, Huh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know. We'll probably have salted chicken and salted pork, and that's all right, you know. Yeah, turkey jerky. (laughs) I'm just having fun, but anyway. Salt is just that. It is a preservative. I mean, that's why when you look at a can of food, for example, and and you look at it, even uh, if you ever even look at like a, a diet soda or something, man, it's amazing the amount of salt that is in that stuff compared to natural foods that don't have near that. But it's a preservative. So we are to preserve the truth. That's what he's talking about. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. This I think is extremely important because the Word of God doesn't belong to us. We don't have the right to change it, to add to it or take away from it. We have been put in trust with the Word of God. 1 Thessalonians two four, Paul makes this statement. He says well I'll back up a little bit he says our exhortation was not of deceit it was not of uncleanness it was not of guile I mean when he went forth in Philippi preached the gospel there was no wrong intent no wrong motive involved he wanted to just simply share what God had said unto him but he makes this statement he said but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel. Even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which tries our heart. For neither at any time use we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak cloak of covetousness, God has witnessed, nor men sought we glory. Neither of you, nor yet of others, that we might have been burdensome of the apostles of Christ. He sincerely wanted to remain faithful to what he had been put in trust in see the word of god is like a will it's the last will and testament jesus left and he'll be back but he left his will and his teachings to us that's what's going to come out in a few weeks when we get back into the sermon on the mount well what would you think for example if you had a will and you laid it out in a certain way. And then it was given to a lawyer, and you expected him. It was given in trust. When you lay out, when you have a will made out, you have it done with a lawyer, and that lawyer keeps a record of it. And that is expected to be carried out the way that it was laid out. I read a story about the Pringles man. You know what Pringles are? The tater chip? (laughs) Yep, the potato chip. Well the potato chip man, he came up you know, with that flat chip in a can and of course he made millions off of it. But he made a statement, he said, it was said in his will that when he died, he wanted to be cremated and he wanted his ashes put in a Pringles camp and then buried. I didn't know if you knew that, but he did. And not all of them got put in the Pringles camp, but some of them did. <laughs> So anyways, can you imagine a lawyer, you know, reading down through the will and seeing that this needs to be carried out. And he says, oh, that's disgusting. We're not going to do that. And he changes the desires of the, of the man. If the man said this is the way that I want it to be done and he entrusted it into somebody, he expects it's going to be carried out the way that it should be. You know what I mean? Well, that's the way it is with us. He left, and he gave us his word. And he doesn't want us fooling around with it. He he said, I'm giving this to you in trust. I don't want you to add to it. I don't want you to change it. I want you to leave it alone. I don't want you to be influenced by men. I mean, men are always trying to influence people to change the word of God in some way. I saw some of the political stuff that was coming up. And there was a, a, a bill that went through the Congress and got passed, and now it's into the Senate, and it's kind of a, a, an addition to the uh, Equal Rights Amendment. I'm not, I'm not teaching on the subject, so don't hold me straight to it, but it goes something like this, that basically they want to add to that, removing discrimination, uh, they want to add to that, to whereby there's no discrimination toward gays and lesbians and transvestites and all that other. They want they want to add this thing to it. Well, the problem a lot of a lot of Christian ministers are upset because they feel like what it's going to do is just open the door to whereby. Uh, there's going to be fornication, and so for fornicators that they don't agree with, we obviously don't agree with homosexuality, the Bible condemns it. It's a form of fornication. All you do is read Romans 1 and 2, and it comes out very plain that they're under the wrath of God. But churches have opened themselves up so much to government control by allowing tax exemptions and stuff, to whereby churches then are considered a public building, so if it's a public building, these people can come and go and please. Now that's that's why we're different. We uh, follow the New Testament pattern of the church. This is not a public building. This is a private building, and it's it is they that would be trespassing for them to come in. But not in most churches, it wouldn't be that way. Not that they like it. I remember we're listening to one Catholic priest, and he doesn't like it a bit. He said, "Okay, I'm I am i can basically," he said, "I can't stop you from coming in." But I don't want your money, and I don't want your influence. I don't want you talking about this, that, and the other. But for some reason, they, that was allowed to happen. Well, anyway, so there's concerns that this could turn into something that, just like the man that owned a business that said, I'm sorry I'm not building a wedding cake for a couple of gay men, ended up going to court. He's getting sued again now for something else, something similar, I forget. They don't want that happening. So three senators, one from Ohio, one from Maine, I forget where the other one was from, sat down with a group of religious leaders and asked them and said, look, is there some way you can uh, uh, change your beliefs, uh, change your interpretation, change your ideas to whereby we can vote for this, for it to go through, and you can live with what we vote for. Of course, a lot of churches would just say, oh, we don't need change. Nothing. We, got, we got a lesbian on the pulpit. Um, <laughs> you know, they're not anti that. But anyways, when I read it, I thought they're asking them to compromise their beliefs, to change their positions on the Bible. It's not their right to do that. You get what I'm saying? It's what Paul's saying. I've been put in trust with the word of God. This isn't my my word. This isn't my letter. This isn't my Bible. I don't have that right. You don't have that right. You you don't have a right to start adding things to it or changing it thinking that it's something that's okay because it's a it's a neat idea. It's popular. You think it'll work better than what he said you don't want to do that you're going to have to answer for that question it's not ours we're to preserve the truth that's what salt does it prevents bacteria and decay from coming in for example I'll just quote these in Jude 1.3 and I want you to turn to Matthew 5 in Jude 1.3 what does he say he says I want you to earnestly contend for the faith don't argue with people but it's the devil that is the one that's going to try to get the word of God to be compromised and changed. He wants you to stand up to, up to that. Now, the devil uses people. I mean, read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's testimony, a, a Lutheran pastor in Germany, that he refused to compromise. And he severely suffered for the faith against the Nazi regime. And there have been many others that have done done the same. But if I look at Matthew chapter 5, this expresses what I just got done saying in the 19th verse. Listen to what he says. He says, well, I'll start with verse 17. Think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. I'm come to destroy it, but fulfill it. Basically to give the deeper understanding of what is beyond the letter. I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, not one jot or one tittle, shall nowise pass from that law to all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, and teach men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, I'm not trying to say that every church is condemned that doesn't dot the I and cross the T exactly as we think they should because nobody's got perfection of truth we should be striving for that Ephesians 4 says we should all be coming into the unity of the faith unto the knowledge of the Son of God unity without doctrine isn't unity that's just being lovey-dovey there has to be an agreement fellowship is koinonia in in the Greek it's a, a oneness of mind Well, that can only come over a period of time with humility and openness and the baptism of the Holy Spirit and everything else. But the point is, he says, if you take away from my word and replace it with something that I haven't said, you're at least going to lose a reward. You're at least going to find that you'll not be rewarded for being faithful with what he said. It's not our word is the point. He wants us to preserve it, not mess around with it, change it. I'll give you these scriptures. Turn to 2 Corinthians 7, um, but I'll, or 2 Chronicles rather 7. But Revelation 22, 19, he says, Whosoever adds to or takes away from the words of this book, their part shall be taken away or added to. In other words, if we mess around with God's word, and we invent and come up with things that he hasn't said, and people spend a lot of focus and time following that, and the purpose of discipleship isn't accomplished. The man or the woman that is chosen to do that will answer for it. Over in Proverbs 23, 23, he says, Buy the truth, sell it not. You gotta buy it. You gotta study it. Second Timothy three sixteen says, Study to show yourselves approved unto God by being a workman. You study it. You you learn, from, we all learn from one another. And so you listen to what others have taught, of what God has showed them. And you pray about it and you put that together and you search the scriptures to see if these things be so and the Holy Spirit will lead us and guide us unto all truth. That's our promise. But it comes by Spending time studying the word of God. You're not going to get it without putting forth some time and effort and study. It also takes humility. Second Chronicles, I told you to turn there and I should have. But basically this is a promise that in Second Chronicles he says, If my people will humble themselves. Let me get it real quick so I don't butcher it. But we're talking about preserving God's word to keep it from corruption. <laughs> Chapter 7 and verse 14. He said, if my people, and we ought to back up and read verse 3, if I shut up heaven and there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people. Bevson mentioned something to me the other day about the great drought that went through the Midwest, not the Midwest, but the northern, southwest years ago, what would that be like in the 30s, I believe? Great drought. There were a lot of men and women that turned to the Lord because they knew it was a judgment of God. So he's talking about that. Sometimes God does. He'll judge people with severe weather and so forth. But if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked way, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their land and I'll heal them. Well, that's a tremendous promise. But it comes with it like any other promise. He says, if my people will humble themselves, if they'll be teachable, if they'll have an open heart, if what they believe and what they're teaching others to follow isn't right, then they need to repent of that. And get back to the truth, get back to what is right. That is the whole message of the prophets in the Old Testament. That was their message, was to get back to what Moses had taught. And the prophets, the good prophets were before them. That he says, if they will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then God will heal and deliver well, a lot of people today, they, they read that, but they don't, I don't know, it just doesn't seem to click about humble. Because if you bring out some things that they believe and simply ask the question, where do you find that in the word of God? We give you a number of things, but where do you find that? You talk to them, and they are not about to give up their cherished traditions, even if their cherished traditions don't line up with the word of God. And again, Jesus deals with that. Coming up in the Sermon on the Mount. He wants us to be faithful to the truth. And what it will do. Is it will prevent judgment. It will give more time. For the Holy Spirit to open hearts of people. And give repentance. 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 6 and 7. For time I won't read it. But what he's talking about. Is the rise of, of Antichrist. There's already an Antichrist spirit that's here. But there will be one day that man of perdition, which is spoken of, and he, he says the only thing holding him back right now, he says there's something that is preventing, something that is holding him back from coming forth. And I believe what he's talking about is us, is our our life as we live what God says in his word, we are preserving his word, and that is working to bring men to repentance, and so forth. So, in a real sense, we are preserving the word of God. I mean, ask yourself the question. In Matthew 24, 14, he's talking about end time things there. And one he makes a comment, he says, this gospel should be preached to all the world before I return. Well, in the last few hundred years, the gospel has spread greatly to the world. But ask yourself the question, why has Europe and North America and South America been able to keep Christianity so strong? Well, I'll tell you why. Because it's some men and women that have refused to compromise the truth and are living examples of what is right. I don't mean that they're perfect. I don't mean everything that they teach is necessarily perfect. Like I said, there is no church that's got all truth. There are some that have got more than others. But there's been people in those churches, whether it be Catholic, Lutheran, Methodist, Baptist, Pentecostal, Mennonite, I don't care what it is, that they've been faithful. You can read about these men in history. These men would be people like, for example, Luther, Wesley, Calvin, Moody, Moody. Finney, Knox, Jonathan Edwards, even Billy Graham. I mean, you might pick apart some of the things where you could say, well, I know people that went to Billy Graham's crusade and they didn't continue in their Christianity. Well, I know people that did and they continued in their Christianity. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm one of them. (laughs) So... I know what he taught, I know what he said. You know, not everybody has necessarily a teaching gift. There are different functions in the ministry. Some are pastors, some are evangelists, some are teachers, then you have apostles and prophets. So they're not all the same. Some men have got a deeper understanding than other than are other men, but that doesn't mean they're they're wrong. They're of God. They have a purpose, they have a function. The important thing is that they're faithful to what they have been taught if it is in harmony with the word of God that they're going to remain faithful to that and continue to grow and to mature but they uh, go forth and they preach a message repent believe the gospel be baptized and as now a disciple grow and mature in the Lord and that's what churches need to be admonished about is that it's not just getting evangelized and stopping but it is hearing the word of God and continuing to mature and to grow in that area being a disciple we don't have in this church for example we don't have evangelistic sermons and I invite people up and see if they want to get saved because we don't have the need in here I'm ministering to people that are already saved I'm ministering to people that I'm trying to witness to them and point them in the direction of how that we're to mature and grow that's my calling as a teacher in Hebrews 6 for example paul makes the statements here he says leaving the principles of the doctrine of christ let us go on to perfection not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward god and the doctrine of baptisms and the laying on hand there's a place for that certainly Certainly there's a place for an evangelistic meeting to minister to the lost and to point them in the direction to becoming a citizen of the kingdom of God and to make that a public statement by being baptized and letting people know I'm now a disciple of Jesus and I've got a goal in my heart and that is to be conformed and made like unto his image. But at the same time, you don't stop with that. I can remember one time going to a another church it was a fun, a fun like a Baptist church and Bev made the comment to me when we went she said now don't be surprised if it's a John 3:16 sermon I said okay and it was and she I said asked her later about it she said because the, the person that we went to see said that's all they ever talk. every Sunday is just a you need to get saved sermon well how you know, I, I've heard those. I got saved. But I don't need to hear that for 50 years if I'm already saved. I want to find out what else is in the Word of God. Now, not all are like that, to be sure. But that's the point. I mean, we could go on 1 Corinthians 13, Ephesians 4. I've got some of that written down. 1 Corinthians 13 is that foundation. We're to build. When you get born again, you got a foundation upon your righteousness, which is in Christ. But now we're to build on that foundation. And he says, if you waste your time with wood and stubble on the day of judgment for us as believers, in the Greek it's called the bima of Christ, on the day of judgment for us as believers, we're not going to be judged to determine whether or not we make it into heaven. We have eternal life when we receive Jesus as our Savior. But we are going to be judged as to what we've done with his word How have we built on that foundation? Did I build wood, hand, stumble, or did I build gold, silver, precious stones? Read it in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, everyone's works will be tested by the fire. And some men will only make it in by the foundation, by the skin of their teeth, because they didn't spend time as a disciple finding out what God said and being salt in the earth and bringing forth the the preservative of its work. So we are to to do that. Now let me give you, in closing, and I didn't get into being light, I may have to talk about that next week, because one another concern going through the government today is this 1619 history changing idea, which I don't know if you know what that is, but the implication is that It was just greedy white men from Europe that came into this country for the express purpose of getting slave ships to come in so they could get rich off their backs. And we need to change history and not talk about 1776 so much, but 1619 when the first slave ship came in. And all of this is taught in government schools. Some states are saying we're not going to allow it, to be taught. It's changing history. But what grieves my heart is, listen, this country is blessed because light came into this country. You look around at the third world heathens and pagans that were involved in all kinds of ungodly worship. I just, I'll just i show you a picture. I may talk about it. You get the idea from the media that The Native Americans, they were just so refined and so uh, intelligent. And, you know, we mean, arrogant Europeans came in and pushed them off their land. They were polytheistic. They were animistic. And clearly, if you know anything about the Bible, in Romans 1 and 2... And the Old Testament, God used Israel to judge the pagan nations of the world and drive them out. That's the message after they came out and crossed the Jordan River. Well, I'm not saying that's what we apply, but there's a principle here. If you go around, Bev and I travel. You can go to a lot of different state parks and so forth and look at the area, the Native Americans in the area, and what some of them looked like, you won't see it. You won't see it. This is what you'll see <laughs> on the media. There's old Obama standing there shaking hands, and some they've got the beautiful headdress on. They they look so refined and intelligent, so sophisticated. They didn't evolve that way. Some of them became that way because uh, historically they knew they could get into the entertainment business by cleaning things up. This is the way they really look over here. And the truth is, many of them, they were heathens, they were pagans, they were going about killing people, robbing, stealing. And when light came into this country, it started changing them. The gospel message. You don't find this today, of course. But they didn't naturally evolve into being... um, What's the word I'm looking for? They they didn't naturally evolve into becoming... um, Civilized, thank you. They didn't naturally evolve into that. Light came into this country. I mean, the message was that people came over from Europe because they wanted religious freedom. They didn't want they wanted to get away from the persecution in Europe. They weren't money hungry. They had a love in their heart for Jesus Christ. They came over here and as missionaries, they spread the gospel. And as they spread the gospel, then the gospel message began to be adopted into the beliefs of people and they changed, not just in America, but all around the world. But they want us to believe that it was an unchristian thing. Men came over here greedy for money, brought in slave ships, and all they wanted to do was stress their capitalistic ideas and oppression. And it's coming forth from a liberal-minded media and political view that wants to take and rob the true message for the Christian of being light when they came into this world. Now, certainly there were some men that probably wanted to try to make big money off slaves. I'm not saying that doesn't, and I'm certainly not anti, I'm not pro-slavery. Don't get me wrong. But they're trying to get Christianity out of history. And that's nothing more than an antichrist spirit that is attacking Christianity and it's going to have an effect upon this country to whereby we're going to go down instead of up. And at some point, if the salt and light loses its effect, God's going to say, I'm done. And his wrath is going to come forth. Mark it down. I don't have time to get into it, but mark it down, it's going to happen. If people don't start getting back to the roots and the truth of Christianity, it, it's shameful that these senators would sit down with heads of churches and ask them to compromise their beliefs so that if they went ahead and voted for some of this stuff to go through, like amendments to the um, equal rights thing, that if we could somehow adopt that and accept it, it would just make things so much much better. No, it's not. God wants us to be salt. He wants us to be light. Light dispels the darkness. Yeah. And if we simply do and believe what he says, we'll, we will dispel the darkness and take it out. Let me go back and bring up one thing. There's so much I could say here. But salt and light... Loses its effect how? Well, salt will lose its effect if it doesn't come in contact with something. I mean, if it fails to come in contact with the world, what good is salt? I mean, you could have a container of salt in your cupboard, but if it's just up in the cupboard and you never put it on anything, what good is it? You know what I'm saying? So we have to come in contact with the world. Paul teaches in another place, he says that we would have to leave this world. He's saying we are to be separate, but he's saying we're not not total separation. You're going to work with people that aren't Christians. You're going to have neighbors that are not Christians. You're going to have school people, friends that that you're with that are not Christians. Well, we don't isolate ourselves from them. That isn't what God wants us to do. He wants us to be salt and light. So he wants us to be around them. But when we're around them, He wants you to love him more than them. And he doesn't want you to compromise your belief. He doesn't want you to let them affect you. You're to overcome that. He wants you to be strong in the Lord. That's why as we raise our children, the responsibilities that we have at home, that as we raise our children, we raise them to have some convictions, to go out into the world and be like a Shadrach, Meshach, Daniel, Bendigo. That we're going to hold on to what has been said and not be ashamed of the gospel. And the worst thing that could happen is some persecution. And Jesus says, rejoice. But we don't isolate ourselves. We don't try to find an island in the Pacific and just go on out there and live and stay separate from the world. Tempting sometimes. (laughs) But that's not our calling. Salt has to have in contact with the world. And lastly, Acts 20 and many other places, salt and light become ineffective when they fail to teach the whole counsel of God. In Acts 20, and I think I'll read this close. In Acts 20, the Apostle Paul was telling some of the elders that he knew he was going to go to Rome and he knew he was going to be put to death. But what he said to them was this. I'll read it real quickly. He says, verse 27, verse 26, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you the counsel of God. Take heed, therefore, brethren, unto yourselves and all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. An overseer is a pastor. He says you're an overseer. You're calling, he says, to feed the church of God which he's purchased with his own blood. For I know this, after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock, but of their, of their own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not born one night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those which are sanctified. And he went on to say, I didn't covet anybody's gold, any silver, In other words, he was not a beggar for money. He wanted people to sincerely hear what God said in his word so the Holy Spirit could use that and fulfill the responsibility of being a disciple and mature and grow and be conformed under the image of Christ. That's a responsibility. We're to be salt. We're to be light. We are not to mess around with God's word. We're to present it with wisdom but we're to present it to whereby it can accomplish what God wants it to be accomplished. And we are light. He wants us to live our Christianity. And as we live it, it will dispel the darkness. Darkness doesn't overcome light. Light always comes, overcomes darkness. If you want to intensify the darkness, you got to turn down the light. You can't go on out to the hardware store and buy black lights. No such thing. Well, I mean, there are some out there, but in this room, if we wanted to make it darker, we got to turn down the lights. If we turn up the lights, the darkness is gone. What he wants us to do is live our Christianity, and that will dispel the darkness, be faithful to his word when chosen, when spoken to, and that will then preserve the truth that he died for and purchased men with his own blood. Father, I wish I had more time today because I know what you've given me to say and I know what's in my heart. I pray that the seeds planted would just be spoken to each one of individually that we would remind ourselves, hey, I'm salt. I've been in trust with, with your word. And I'm light. You've called me to be other than the world. And dispel the darkness by what is true and by what is light. Father, help us to whereby we have a positive influence amongst our neighbors and our co workers, family and friends, and fulfill our calling as a Christian. Bless the word to our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.